Just like that, Dwayne. Here we are. Uh-huh. So, a little bit of uh, teething on uh, mics and uh, HVAC. But we're working through that. And uh, we'll get all that sorted out shortly. Yeah. And we'll be um, uh, making a lot cleaner sound, especially for uh, headphone users. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Apologies for Arkansas summer, but it's real. 70, 80% humidity. Yeah. So we just came from the uh, Bladesmith show, or was it? Nat- Natural State Knife Show? Yeah. Yeah. And we walked around, what would you say, 20 tables, 30 tables? 30 vendors, probably. Yeah. Around the out- outside, down the middle. And then there were um, suppliers as well as knife makers. A few. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what are your, what was your takeaway from that? And we, we had some good conversations uh, with some makers there and sort of what they're dealing with. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's a numbers game because these bladesmiths and knife makers, they, they are craftsmen. It's, yeah. it's relevant. And, you know, if you're doing a, a trade that takes um, a long time per project and they're sort of scheduled far out, you learn the same lessons as the knife maker, but the knife maker is unique in that, especially when they're starting out, they prepare all of these things speculatively and then they show up and it's like, it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. It's kind of like building a a spec house. Yeah. You know, you, you don't know what, well, you have an idea what the public will like or what looks appealing, but you're not a hundred percent sure before you show up. So we talked to, to a guy who had some actually really beautiful knives. Oh, they're fantastic. But he was having a lot of trouble, trouble moving them just because they were specific. They were chef's knives. They weren't, I think he said buoys and folders were the yeah. movers mm-hmm. at, at the show. And I, I meant to ask him and, and didn't if, it was just this show in particular. It sounded like he was having trouble at several different shows he had been to trying to get his work to move. And I don't know if that is the audience that shows up at these shows in our area or if that's nationwide. I, th- Yeah, I. that's what I gathered. And we could both be wrong, right, like yeah. a, about our perception. But I look at these knife shows as... Uh, maybe the way you would look at if you were selling firearms and you go to a gun show. Yeah. The, the, the hot items there are going to be things that are at a certain price range and have a certain appeal or aesthetic. Yeah. Right. You're not necessarily going to sell a Holland and Holland side by side breakover. That's $110,000. That's not the market. Sure. The folks that are looking for those, they don't go to a gun show. It's like a longer process or it's much more, you know, it's almost like the gun show comes to them at their hunting club 
Yeah. And says these these are our offerings, and we're also taking orders for next year. And and so there's a reason that you don't see much of that at your average gun show. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there are some gun shows where you see full range, but like a lot of what you see is sort of um, maybe a little bit simpler or a little bit more like uh, a guy will have a table with uh, 200 1911s. You know, because yeah. a 1911 is like, a, it is the Bowie knife of the firearm world. Sure. It's iconic. Everybody knows what it is. And it's sort of the, the thing. Yeah. And and he had something, again, beautiful, chef's knives. Um, that's, a, there's only so many people out there that will spend real money on um, tool like that. There is. And I, I found it very interesting where he made the connection of they'll pay big money for a buoy yeah. that they'll put on a shelf, a hunting knife that they'll use once a year, mm-hmm. but a knife they use every day, every other day at the very least, they're not willing to spend that money on it. Right. And why why is that? Right. Is that is that not masculine? Is that not mm. manly? Like why right. And and on the other side, chefs, as you were saying, will certainly pay a premium. Oh yeah, for those nicer knives, and they use them and they they put them through the paces. Uh-huh. But I imagine there's not a lot of chefs that are like, oh, I'm going to go to the local show, yeah. and buy something from this maker I don't really know a lot about. And and those chefs are, you know, like what we were talking about, and and he even brought it up himself. He's got to find a different, you know, if you equate it to fishing, mm-hmm. you need to find a different pond. Right. Or make your own pond, as, right. as uh, Jerry Fisk is known to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he could get into an area where um, there was a high concentration of those chefs yeah, that were sort of, you know, up and coming and trending and right. all of that, those guys will drop. on a set of knives easily, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's the tools of their trade. Right. You know, um, but how do you do that? You know, how it it would take a fair amount of legwork. It's certainly possible, but you know, and and like I was talking to him, yes, you could make a living making Bowie knives and skinners and hunters. And, Mm -hmm. but if that's not really your passion, then follow whatever it is that you're really passionate about because that's what will see you through a lot of hard times. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It it almost becomes work if it's not your passion. Yeah, exactly. Nobody has fun doing work. And he obviously knows how to make a, a really nice chef's knife. Very much. And he's here and not too far. Uh, from where we're located, so I'd really like to go down and see his, uh, his setup and I would talk too. with him. Uh, just to have somebody local, I think, almost uh, gives you a little bit of drive to get out and and try a little more mm-hmm. because you can do, I mean, you can do all the things on your own, but until you have somebody to compare with or to show it to and then be like, Oh yeah, I like that. Or I don't like that. Or it feels a little heavy on this end, or it looks not quite centered or, uh, you know, you, you don't get better. Right. 
you you can be your own critic, but you certainly don't excel. Yeah, um, at that. And every once in a while, a person like that will just in little bits and pieces, tidbits, they'll give you information that is the puzzle piece you've been looking for yeah. to solve a problem. And it's almost like they're talking in a code that if you don't know all of the dog whistle words uh-huh. or um, the little slight inferences, uh, it just sort of goes over your head because they're not accustomed to talking to other makers, right. not at a show. You know right. what I mean? Um, but yeah, they, they kind of speak their own language. I remember when I was first starting, I was talking to uh, a well-known bladesmith and I was telling him, I said, you know, I'm working on forge welding, but I'm having trouble getting my uh, welds to stick. No. And I said, but I know my, my fire is getting hot enough. And he, he, kind of cut his eyes over at me and he looked at me over his glasses and he goes it's not necessarily how hot your fire is it's the kind of fire you have yeah and at the time that went totally over my head and then when i started reading about it i got a book on forges and the different kinds of burners yeah i realized he's talking about a reducing flame forge starved of oxygen so that you're not oxidizing yeah uh, he didn't grab me by the arm and say, hey, you need to run that forge really rich so that, you know, flames are coming out of the ends and, you know, that all the oxygen's consumed. Right. And you need to make sure that you're not exactly underneath the burner where all that oxygen is being dumped right on your piece. He didn't say any of that. He just said, well, it's not really how hot it is. It's the kind of fire. So he gave you the answer without yeah. giving you the answer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But but part of what, whether they know it or not, what craftsmen are looking for is not to completely take a lifetime of experience and just spill their guts to somebody they don't know. Right. It's almost like the, I, I think of the Freemasons, how they have like certain handshake, certain words. Yeah. yeah. And when you hear that, you're like, oh, okay, they're giving me a message. Yeah. Now it's up to you to be at a level where you can comprehend those and apply those and everything else right well there's there's those guys out there that i'm sure early on in their career did spill their guts and did give all the answers to anybody that would listen Mm -hmm. and they would tell them everything and then six months later the guy would come back be like yeah i'm still having problems with that yeah well did you try a b and c they're like well no i'm just i'm still trying it like it was before and they're Mm -hmm. like oh like you, you weren't listening or you yeah. weren't paying attention or you think you know more than I do. So yeah. now if somebody comes along and is like, yeah, I'm having a little trouble with this, they'll be like, let me give you a little tidbit. If you choose to go out and use that and research it and do something. Put a few minutes of thought into yeah, it. Do, do something useful with it. Maybe I'll give you a little more. Right. But I'm not going to waste my time. It's reciprocal. They want to mm-hmm. see that you're actually going to do something right. or put some effort in. Because also, and and I don't think that this is selfish at all. I think it's a good use of a master's time. A master, whenever he's in a setting like that and he's conducting business and he's you know selling the products that he's making, whenever he meets somebody that he doesn't really know, He's not looking to adopt. 
He's not looking to take an apprentice. He's not looking to like even a journeyman. He's just like, yeah, I'll give you some of this information, but like, I don't want to be pen pals where you call me every weekend and say, it's not working. Yeah. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's your fault. Cause there are some people that are like that, you know, they will just latch onto you and, and just leech. Yeah. All your, your time and effort. Yeah. 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 So like I said, I don't think it's really planned or thought out, but there's a little bit of a code that's going on and a little bit of a dog whistle, if you want, or, or, or just sort of put a little bit out there and then see what you do to it. And then maybe have a conversation after that. But nobody's going to break out graph paper and a pencil and be like, oh, here's what you do. Then you do this. And then, you know, and they just call me if you have any problems, you know, because, (laughs) you know, you talk to 10 guys like that and it won't be 10 guys calling you. It'll be 20 guys calling you because they'll be like, hey, I got this, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Still have to make a living. Yeah. I was talking to the girl about the knife shop. And uh, about that breakdown, um, I think it was a buoy that the guy had. And she was telling me a little bit about it. And uh, so I, I talked to her a little more and um, just kind of told her that I'd met him before and talked to him and, you know, did just exchange some information that showed that I was paying attention last time that yeah. I talked to them. And she even said, like, you have a pretty good memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, after she said that, she's like, let me show you a drawing. And she went and found his drawing that he made for that knife and, mm-hmm. and broke it out. And was like, yeah, he drew these pieces and this is how it went together. And this is where he started. This was the steps that he took to, to make these, this knife. And um, she goes, here's a little personal story about it. And right. Told me, you know, inspirations and, yeah. and different things about it and stuff that probably didn't get relayed. Cause she had to go hunt for that drawing. Yeah. It wasn't something that she was just breaking out on everybody that came by. Yeah. So once they realized that you're not just there to kick tires yeah, and be like, well, I'd give you, I'd give you 20% of what you want cash right now here yeah. today. I'll pay for your gas to get home. Right. You know, that, that right. doesn't do anything. No, yeah. no, no, no. But it, it opens a lot of doors if you can have a reasonable, competent conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, with those people absolutely yeah well the and the other thing is and i think some of the uh underappreciated people at those knife shows you would usually see the maker there and then you would see their spouse with them yeah and the spouse is the one that is knows everything about the the blades and is willing to answer questions and is like, they are playing an important role, not just there where you see them, but those late nights that they had to work to get where they were like, I need to take at least six because if we sell two, then that covers the cost of this and the trip and the hotel and all that sort of stuff. You know? So whenever I was leaving that one table where I saw a couple knives, you know, that Mm -hmm. I liked and I was talking to them, I said, thank you um, to the gentleman. And then I 
started to turn around. And then I turned back and I said, and thank you to you as well, to his wife. Yeah. And she kind of laughed. And I was like, no, because it's important that you're here. Like, I realize it's both of you that are invested in this. Very much so. And rarely do people um, acknowledge the role that a spouse, because it could easily be a husband or a mother or, you know, right. just some sort of partner that comes to these shows with these makers and everybody wants to talk to the maker and everybody wants to do, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But you have no idea how much that person's doing in the background. 100%. To, uh, to make that happen. Yeah. And they unsung, you know what I mean? They are. And when we were down in old Washington, um, and we were sitting in the, the audience watching mm-hmm. the cutting competition. Yeah. We were with all of their spouses. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you could hear, you could tell uh-huh. who belonged to who yep. by how they were cheering mm-hmm. and conversations they were having. And, and it was, it was really neat to see that they were, like you say, they were just as involved yeah. and they were like the support. Yes. Like they kept everything running around that so yeah. that he could follow a, a passion and a craft and, and to do his thing. Yeah. So I, I I agree with you that that is a vital, vital role in that. You look at a pro athlete and they'll have an agent and maybe a lawyer mm-hmm. and like all these other things. But when you look at a craftsman, they can't afford an agent. They can't <laughs> afford a lawyer. They can't no. afford what they have is their partner. Yeah. And that partner is the one that will, um, you know, make sure that when they get in the vehicle to go to the show that they're like, yep, we have this knife, this knife, this knife. Right. I've already made the reservations. I have them here. I've got, you know, they've done all this groundwork because chances are, especially if they're in the beginning or the middle of their career, that maker has worked themselves almost to exhaustion Mm -hmm. just to get to that show with products to sell. Right. So all these other things that happen in the background, where are we going to stay? Where, where are we going to eat? Yeah. Did we make the reservations in time? Do we have the parking permit? Do we right. have all the or setting up the table? Did we pay for table fees? Yeah. 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 You know, that person is, they're just steadily doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're not taking home a paycheck. They're not, know? they're not. I've spoken to several who were like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm in charge of marketing and accounting. Yeah. Like after they make or, or whatever yeah. they're doing, like they don't have time yeah. or capacity or a lot of times they're working a full-time job yeah. on top of being a maker and they're just, they're just tapped out with yeah. all of it. Yeah. But in, in, in my business, you know, I've worked to a point where I'm able to hire some people that do things, mm-hmm. but my wife is still the one that proofreads yeah. all the invoices and sends them and does um, just had an audit come through for uh, workman's comp and mm-hmm. insurance and all of that sort of stuff. Things that literally shave months off of my life. <laughs> she'll just, she'll take them, fill them out, send emails, get the things from the accountant. Yeah make sure that those things are done because she knows that for me, that is like saying, Hey, this weekend, do you want to go up Mount Everest? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not equipped nor prepared for, right. for that. And, and right. so 
Yeah, that's a huge part of uh, being able to to pursue a life of it being is. a craftsman. It know? is. There's there's very few people there that I saw that looked like they were a, like a lone wolf. Right. You know, right. everybody seemed to have, even if it was, I think we stopped at one or two where it was their friends yep. that were running their table while they yep. stepped away to eat or mm-hmm. take a break or whatever they were doing. Yeah. And they were more than willing to talk about, mm-hmm. oh, this is great. And I have a few of these and I've used this. And, right. You know, they were, they were their fan club as well. Yes. And just as happy to, to jump in and help. They probably weren't making it, any money at all. Yeah. They were yeah. just there um, in support. Right. And, and that's, um, yeah, I mean, just talking through that, like, I don't even think about it that much. And I know it's a real thing, you know. But uh, that's so important. And and everybody needs a cheerleader every once in a while, yeah. whenever it just feels like. No matter who you are. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a it was a really good experience. And, and I think that it's, um, as, as a craftsman, if you're not going out and looking at other people in their pursuit, even if it's far away from what you do mm-hmm. as a trade, then you're sort of robbing something from yourself because you're able to at least have a fresh set of eyes, you know, um, like the gentleman we were talking to that makes the chef's knives with the benefit of distance and sort of not being entangled in it. Mm -hmm. It's real easy for me to just see like, Oh yeah, you just need to to find another, (laughs) which is worth exactly what you paid for it. Nothing. (laughs) But, but think about how clearly you see that, but then, if he were to come and watch what I do for a day, yeah, he'd probably be like, Hey, there's a few things. If you, if you would just do this, everything would be easier. Right. You know? Right. And, and I should take it in the spirit of, um, uh, contributing when somebody gives me that information yeah. rather than being real protective and be like, well, you don't, you don't really know that much about what I do. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have to, he, he can see it. You know? Yeah, but it's human nature. It, yeah. It, it almost feels like an attack, personally. Can. Yeah, it can. If, yeah. You're, if you're really... I, I think the younger you are and the newer you are, mm-hmm. the more you're going to take it that way. Yeah. Well, it could be in their presentation, too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. some people... They get scoff and you're like, <laughs> well, <laughs> just for me. Yeah, and there are people out there like that. And, and what you find is they quickly... They, um, it catches up to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, they won't necessarily be ostracized or anything like that, but they just have less interaction, less camaraderie, Mm -hmm. less of sort of sitting around and being able to swap stories and things like that because craftsmen are, Hey, you've heard me say it before. They're they're high functioning artists. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, maybe maybe not quite as tortured or, or quite as um, driven by emotion. Yeah. As as someone who does like uh, contemporary art, you know. Um, and I don't say that as a slight. I think that part of what an artist is, if you think about, whenever you look at something, everyone has an initial reaction. Mm-hmm. but 
if you think of your initial reaction as a volume knob, a lot of people, because of their responsibilities and the type of work they have, and also the way their brain is wired and all these other things, right? That knob is set at a level that um, is comfortable for that person and doesn't like upset their things they need to get done that day. Yeah. When you look at an artist, like a lot of times that's turned way up like 10 or 11 or 12 mm -hmm. to where they have a very emotional reaction to things and it's so amplified right but that's part of the reason that they're able to make good art is because they're so in tune with like that gut feeling yeah you know but there's uh there's no free lunch so whenever you're turned up that high you're you're in a small boat and a big ocean mm -hmm. with a lot of waves and a lot of wind and a yeah. lot of things that can sort of blow you off course. Whereas right. turn that knob way down. It's like there's less outside influences and you're in a bigger boat and it's more steady, but are you going to make great art? You know? Yeah. Well, I, I want, I have two questions. I want to talk about the knife that you hung that $50 word on that no matter how you looked at it, how, where mm. you moved the, mm -hmm. you got a different, a different pattern came out of the steel. Yeah. Yeah. What was the word you, you put on that? Chatoyance. Chatoyance. So that was something new to me. Uh, the, the word, uh, I thought the knife was beautiful, had a coffin handle on it that was done pretty well. Uh, and the blade was, was gorgeous. Uh, it caught the most light in the room mm -hmm. out of all of them we saw, I think. And it was almost an iridescent kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than people describe it as like, um, uh, flowing water or yeah. like really fine silk hair. Yeah. You know how it, it did. It, it yeah. looked, it looked soft. Like almost if you held it, you couldn't feel it. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said that had something to do with, I'm going to research it. It's something to do with how you, the layer count. It, it's a layer count. Uh, I think your layer count has to be quite high. I think your etch, um, I think your etch can't be too deep. Uh, and also your layer count is manipulated heavily. So instead of just taking a big chunk, 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 mm -hmm. and then grinding it smooth, so that you get a topographic map yeah. sort of effect your pattern manipulation you're you're really pushing those layers so the layers themselves deform yeah it looked like a ladder yeah pattern almost the way the yeah. the lines were in it yeah but the lines weren't necessarily in the pattern but they were in the pattern yeah well what the the um that ladder pattern, if you will, mm -hmm. you, they didn't achieve that by taking a grinder and cutting grooves and then sanding it back. They no. got that by actually where the groove is, it's punched in. Yeah, it's pressure. Punched in. Punched pressure in. applied. And gave it a, a waffle. Yeah. Not a waffle, but a... Chitoyance. I guess that would be it. <laughs> but but then also it, it has to do with how much it is buffed. Yeah. as well 
So you're giving it sort of that mirror yeah. quality. The, yeah. I, I should have stopped and talked to the, to the fellow that made it. Um, cause I am highly impressed mm-hmm. and deservingly, I think, I, I, yeah. I think you did it a very well, a very good job making it and finishing it. Yeah. And the finish work sometimes is, is what breaks a good knife from a bad knife. It's almost always, I mean, what do you have? You have forging, which it's either going to hold together or not. Yeah. You have profile. But then after that, in, in the higher end knives, it's always finished work. In, in the higher end, yeah. Yeah. I guess function. Sure. It, it, you could take it or leave it. Yeah. But yeah, the higher end, it's definitely finished. I don't know. It, that knife stood out the most to me at yeah. the show, I'd say. Um, and just finish work. I think in form, that chef's knife with the feather Damascus was yeah. probably the one I would have put in, mm-hmm. put on my list to take home if I had uh, had the money. Um, but anyway, love that knife. Yeah, um, the shape, the size, the handle—I I thought it was—I thought it was really well thought out and executed. The last question I wanted to ask you is. Did you see anything that turned you off that you didn't, that kind of, you saw it and you, you turned and walked the other way or something where you're like, ah, I'm not going to go over there because I don't want to see that or. Um, yeah, you know, there was a, well, okay. So if we're going to get into that, there was a particular baker. To remain unnamed. Yeah. Um, that I saw some of his work, but I wasn't going to um, engage with or look at or mm-hmm. think about purchasing any of it because uh, I've had some interactions with them in the past. Yeah. A long time ago. And in all fairness, this person could be completely different than what they were. Right. But, uh, that sort of colored my opinion or thought of who they are and what they're about. And so it just sort of, I just thought, no, you know, but it goes back to the whole point that I've been told several times. I'm sure I've told you the thing that people have told me whenever someone buys your product, Yeah, they have a use for your product. They they want that product. Part of what they're buying is you. Yes, I think that's very evident in the in the knife world. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I guess any any handmade good would would also convey that. But the knife world, because of the price tag on a lot of it, Mm -hmm. it it's an investment. Yeah. So you you need to have some sort of connection with that maker. Agreed. And his attitude or his interaction with you could make or break the deal. Yes. Very quickly. Very quickly. Mm-hmm. So much so that like you might not even get within five foot of their table. Yeah. There was a guy who was selling scales. Yeah. Handle scales. Yeah. Nobody at his table. Yeah. We went around the room twice. Nobody at his table both times. But he was sitting there. His head was down. He was on his phone. Yeah. I stopped at his table. And looked at some stuff. Never looked up. Never looked up. He 
was an employee. Yeah, almost, so. almost guaranteed. Because he didn't look like he was in need of a paycheck. He just looked like they needed somebody to sit at this table, someone to sit at this table. Right. And I think he had a few unique things there that I didn't see on other tables, but he 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 wasn't doing anything to promote. Yeah. He wasn't making eye contact. Like he wasn't interacting. He wasn't even standing up. He was just sitting there on his phone and it showed that nobody had any interest right in what he was doing or what he had. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then there's other tables you work walk by and a person engages with you and they're like, feel free to pick them up. If you have any questions, yeah. whatever. And even if there's nothing on that table that you're particularly interested in taste wise, you almost feel obliged to stop and be polite and sure. say thank you and, and sure. look for something that you can compliment them on and say, mm-hmm. I like the way you've done this or yeah. you've done that, you yeah. know, and I try and do that. Um, I've stopped at tables before where there was nothing that um, personally I thought I, w- I would like to have that. But if the person is polite and their heart is in it, then I start looking around and, and trying to find something where I can say, you know what? I like, I like how you did that. I don't have to say I like the knife. Yeah. I won't lie to them. That's not. No, I don't think that helps no, either one of you. But but being able to point something out and say, you know, mm-hmm. I like the way this handle is, or I like the coloration on this, yeah. or like, you know, those sorts of things. It's uh, important. It is. It is. It, it was mentioned that uh, some, of the, some of the knives were probably not the best cutters. Yeah. That were there. The, right the geometry on them was was not thought out mm-hmm. and they they may have been shaped like knives but they may have not been functional as knives right uh which i found very interesting um because i had i'd seen the same thing but i hadn't i don't know if i'd put the two together right like that looks looks odd like if i yeah. was to make it that's not really what i would do it looks blocky or chunky or right uncomfortable or like it wouldn't function well, but he, he actually put it into words as as to why maybe that wasn't the best choice, right, uh, for a knife. So I found that honesty interesting, and he 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 didn't say it as I'm going to tear these people down. No. It was just this is what I've noticed, and this is why I make mine this way. It, it wasn't a, don't go over to that table because they're doing stuff dumb. And, and you notice that he wasn't one of these guys that was like, everybody's stupid but me. He named off two or three other people. He goes, now that guy makes a good knife. Uh-huh. That guy makes a good knife. That guy makes a really thin knife that does this. Uh-huh. And that works great. He, he wasn't about talking down everybody else. Not at all. But he was very honest in like, there are some guys here that make, knife-shaped objects. Yeah. And there are other guys here that make cutters. Like, they go to cutting competitions mm-hmm. and they put their knife against all of these other other people and they take notes and they change right. things. Right. And they, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they're students. Yeah. They didn't just plateau and be like, yeah. well, I'm a knife maker now. You know? But, but they're, they're... They're aware of their surroundings. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Do you also notice the gentleman that we were talking to? And, and I know that a lot of the time I was the one that was sort of talking to him, but um, I have this habit and it is not an insult, but I compare people to dogs. Yeah. I, and the reason I do it is because I like dogs just as much, <laughs> maybe a little bit more than people. Yeah. Um, I think dogs are like fantastic. You know, they're yeah. just like what I think some humans should aspire to be as good as dogs. You, you don't have to sell that to me. Right. But whenever I was talking to him, he had a uh, a border collie or he had a working dog stare. Yeah. I, when you started talking, I was like, it was in his eyes. I say something about yeah. a look, the look that he had. He yeah. was, the, the back of his brain was looking exactly at the back of my brain mm-hmm. when he was talking. Mm-hmm. Border Collies have been used as working dogs for a long time, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of tolerance for a working dog that didn't work. Right. So that gene pool was kept really clean. Yeah. Right. Um, and Border Collies are very similar to wolves. And that they have a, um, they're basically a wolf that I think three or four things that wolves do, they, they stalk, they approach, they, I think stalk approach and then kill. Right. And working dogs are interesting in that they've been selectively bred so that they stalk and they approach and they just stop short of killing. That's what makes them different, right? Yeah. A little bit of that has been left in blue healers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they will, they'll latch on and, yeah. and get a little mean. But yeah, border collies are, they're for the most part, kind of stay hands off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a particular type of dog that I worked with in Australia called a red haired Kelpie. Yeah. Which have a little bit of dango actually mm-hmm. in them and very short hair so they won't die from the heat but right. very smart working dogs but i say all that to say whenever you look into a basset hound's eyes you're not real sure if the basset hound is engaged with you or maybe right. it kind of has those puppy eyes you know but right. it's just sort of like it's there but is it yeah is it when you look at a working dog they stare at you. They stare all the way to the back of your skull. Yeah. And they are locked in. If you take one step to the right, their whole head and their eyes and everything follow you. Mm-hmm. They don't just sort of like look past you into middle distance. Like yeah. they're just like, they're there. Yeah. This guy had that. Mm-hmm. And and there's some other makers that you and I have talked about that are accomplished and they're, they're very um, well-respected. And whenever you talk to them, they're not looking behind you or around you to see who's more important in the room to talk to. No, they're like, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm talking to you. And they, it's, it, I'm sure some people, it makes them nervous to me. It's refreshing. Whenever you see somebody that looks at you and they're actually talking to you. It is me too. And that's something I, yeah, I, uh, I value greatly in people is when they can be, in the moment mm-hmm. in whatever conversation you're having or whatever activity you're doing. Yeah. Like be in the moment. Don't, don't be on your phone. Mm-hmm. Don't constantly check your phone. Don't look, see who else is in the room. 
don't look to see who's behind you and think about the conversation you're going to have with them. You know, don't think about what you're going to have for dinner later. Like if you're going to have a conversation with somebody and I, I've been heavily guilty of this myself. So it, it's something I've struggled with too, but like be, be there, be present, be present. Yeah. Yeah. You get so much more out of a conversation yeah. or an experience if you're present. Yeah. You, know, you retain information. You, um, you can solidify a, a friendship. You can, mm-hmm. you can build trust. You can do so many things if you're just, there yeah yeah and and because of you know we talked to that gentleman at um james black micro show or show knife show uh and we talked to several other people too but on the subsequent conversation at this show i am a hundred percent more likely to make contact with him yeah and visit with him at his shop because you're building that but also you're just like, wow, this guy's he's I'm not gonna drive all the way down there to go visit with him and then watch him look at his phone. No. For most of the time that I'm there. No. You know? Um, which and and I think that's a trait that craftsmen possess um and has been developed yeah. over their career. Because if you're not paying attention to what you're doing, then you're gonna starve, literally. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's completely possible for you to make enough mistakes in one day to negate a week's worth of work leading up to that. Easily. And that's one of the struggles that you have whenever you try and hire someone to work in a shop mm-hmm. is, is this the kind of person that's going to be able to, uh, uh, to focus right? whenever it's not shiny and it's not fun and it's not, and we're not riding dirt bikes, jumping sand dunes. You know what I mean? We're staring at the same thing for eight hours. Yeah. And trying to make it, trying to make this side match the other side. Yeah. So that starts with a lot of like honesty with yourself and inability to uh, keep focusing when it has stopped being fun. Right. And now it's like, it just has to be done. Yeah. You know? Good point. Have you ever met a, a craftsperson that was um, a, a good craftsperson, someone at a high level that was uh, sketchy, that kind of gave you the creeps? Uh, I can't think of one offhand. I can't either. Not that was really dialed in to their craft. That's what I'm saying. No. I've met plenty of people that do the practice Y or Z, you know, and they're doing this and they've been doing it for a while, but then maybe they'll go to something else. But you find somebody that's done something for like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and they have a reputation. They have that working dog stare. Yeah. It's, I'm, and I heard, this is not original to me. I heard someone else say it, that the new superpower for this generation is going to be the ability to focus. Yeah. Because that's going to be so rare. It is. 
It is. You can focus longer than a TikTok video. You're, right. You're, you're dialed in. Yeah. You're going to go right to the top of the stack in, yeah. in that interview process. Mm-hmm. You know? Very true. Well, I don't know. I, I enjoy seeing back to the, the show we went to. Yeah. I enjoy seeing what people are doing, yeah. what materials they're using. Like I had no idea what the erudite, Whoa. is that what it's called? Fordite. Fordite. Do you, Fordite. Do you, if, if you I know, know what it is. I just didn't know it by a, that name. Yeah. And, and it all started with, it was in Detroit, I think it was. Makes sense. Some of the workers would take, because you literally have to go in with a hammer. Same thing happens at powder coat shops. Uh-huh. You can go to any powder coat shop and just say, can I like take some of the chips off of your uh, rack? They'll look at you like you're really strange. <laughs> um, but it'll be built up almost like stalactites, uh-huh. you know, hanging off of there. And sometimes it'd be two or three inches thick and you take a hammer and hit it and it'll come off in a big chunk. Yeah. And then you sand that back. And every time there's been a layer of material, like in Fordite's case, whenever they would paint the trucks or yeah. the cars or the whatever, yeah. um, it, it, you, you end up with this strata. And then as you sand it back, it's going to give you that sort of Damascus look or topographic map yeah. type thing. It's very interesting. Yeah. It, it looks like some of the stuff he had was intentionally layered the way it was. It wasn't just taken. It, and I could be totally wrong. I, I know nothing about it. So it, it could be off the floor of the paint shop or it, it could have been formed. It's, it's almost, if, if it were formed, it would be extremely labor intensive to do it because some of those things have a thousand layers. Well, time, yeah, time yeah. And it's got to dry. Because a lot of times what it is is not direct spray, it's overspray. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's getting a true layer and then it's curing. It's getting just overspray and then overspray and then over. But you do that 30 times and you get an actual layer of paint. Yeah. And then they change colors. Yeah. And that, that that's why I asked him if it was like gummy or soft. Mm-hmm. Because the paint doesn't cure all the way. It, it's gummy and soft. But it's automotive paint, so it has a hardener in it. I, yeah, that, yeah, it's a two-part two-part paint. So that it, it makes sense now. Yeah. But seeing it um I I couldn't build it in my head movie. Right. So I didn't <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> what it actually was. Yeah. It's just uh, layers of paint. Yeah. It's it's pretty. Yeah. It's not my particular style, but I think it's I it's, and, there's a lot more things that are more unattractive out there. Sure. Sure. Um, speaking of handles, one of the things that like I'm consistently impressed with is how uh, aesthetically pleasing stabilized pa- pine cone is. Yeah. For a handle. It is. You know, um, it's really amazing because pine cones, you know, from the outside, it's like a pine cone. I grew up in the South. <laughs> I've picked up and moved and burned and shoveled and raked tons yeah. of pine cones. Yeah. But it never occurred to me to take a saw and cut right down the middle of it and expose that inner piece and then put it in epoxy and stabilize it. It's beautiful looking. Yeah. 
I don't know how they do it. If they put the entire pine cone in a like a box and then fill it with epoxy and then cut it after it's that would be my cured. guess because if you've ever cut a pine cone, They're the minute you start to brittle and they fall apart. Yeah, the, the minute you start to cut it, all of those little I don't know what the term is for the individual pieces that make up they fall off. Yeah, because you're cutting the binder. Yeah, you know. So my guess is they submerge the whole thing and then use a saw and cut it. Yeah. And then they take those two inner pieces, they flip those to the outside and cut off all the other stuff. Yeah. So, and it's a book matched pair. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite nice. So I really like that. And you and I were talking about this. There seems to be a trend where people are doing handles um, that are like these really unusual colors mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um pastel blues and pinks and yeah. purples and things like that. And I mean, you know, me, the only things that I was really attracted to, I think there was some like Mastodon and mammoth ivory, right. some, uh, doll sheep horn. Yeah. Uh, and then also I'm still a sucker for bog Oak, the yeah. black, yeah, really black, dark, rich type mm-hmm. handles. I, I really like those. It's probably just the fact to me that I know my hands are filthy and, <laughs> Anything that's nice is going to have, you know, right. uh, black smudges on it, just like all the door frames in my house. Um, so, yeah. Um, and and I was asking you, I was like, how well, how well do those knives sell that have those really wild handles on them? I mean, they're making them for a reason. They probably do sell them quite well in certain venues. But the question is, what is, you know. I I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. It's like there's some firearm manufacturers who sell pink and purple guns. Oh, the polymers. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't see a lot of them out there and it takes. Not in the wild. No, 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 no. Some guy might buy it for his wife or, or something, but it, they're not used or carried from what I can tell. Not, not that I've seen. So I, I don't know about, about the knives, you know, it, it would depend on the function. Like I have, I probably have a crappy knife that I use for opening paint cans in a drawer yeah. somewhere. And yeah. is that where they end up or do they end up at, at deer camp, you know, right. stuck to somebody's hip? I, I have no idea. If I saw you show up with a knife that had like a pastel blue handle, or a pink candle because we're friends. I would never, ever let you live that down. I would. Well, I would expect that. I would harass you um, until you got some sort of handle material that was um, more to my liking. Because as we know, <laughs> that's what's most important is what I like, what you have. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So okay. So to each his own. But yeah, I. And it, isn't it amazing? 20 years ago, when I looked at the knife, I thought the most important thing was the blade. But obviously, a handle will turn you off or turn you onto a knife easily. It's the part you interact with. It's the part mm-hmm. that people see mm-hmm. whenever it's in a sheath. Mm-hmm. Some of the sheaths that you saw, I remember thinking, well, I have to throw that away. Gonna, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the sheath is also, and as you well know, you can spend as much time on a sheath as you do on the knife. Yeah. And you can spend a lot of money on the sheath as well. 
when you start getting into the top end leathers and yeah. how it's built. Yeah, there were some there that were that were decent to okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I saw any that were over the top, but I wasn't really paying attention to a lot of the leather. Yeah, I take a quick glance on on a table or two, but there were some that was that was rough. Yeah, and it was it was definitely function. They over, were over. I think over what they were doing was pushing to get a sheath to go with that knife so they could take it to the show. Yeah. And if they were given more time, they would make another I'm, I'm sure sheath. Well, or, or, or they had spent so much time and effort on the knife. They were just like, any more in this and I'll be losing money. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. But at least I can say it comes with a sheath. Right. At least you can carry it. Right. You can use it. You can get it out in the field. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to carry just a knife in their hand while they're yeah. out hunting. Yeah. Like nobody just walks out into That's the silly. woods. silly. I keep it in my teeth <laughs> like a pirate. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that. I don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> no, I, a hundred percent, you know, and, and then it's interesting, you know, you see some knife makers and it's Kydex across the board. Yeah. Kydex for everybody. You know, and then there's certain people that's what they want. And well, you know me in my everyday life, I have three or four Kydex uh, on my work belt. I hold my tools because it doesn't get scratched up. It doesn't matter if it gets wet. It's extremely functional, right? Um, But if I'm, I know this sounds crazy. If I'm going to church and I'm putting an iPhone (laughs) Um, which I, I do yeah. because I'm still redneck at heart. Um, I want it in a nice leather sheath. Yeah. It looks nice. It matches my belt. Right. Right. Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on the, on the person and, and the use of, of whatever they're going to use a knife for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's going to be functional, if it's going to be part of a duty belt or if it's going to be part of your everyday Right. You know, if you're in a, a trade or a craftsman or construction or something like that, mm-hmm. where, I mean, for me, part of the reason that I don't wear any sheaths that are nice is because I'm constantly getting in and out of vehicles or walking past metal tables or things that just scratch and cut up just and tear up leather. everything that I own and wear, uh, whenever I'm working is a consumable, yeah. my shoes, my belt, yeah. right? all my clothes, my pants, my shirt, it's, and some things I put some real money into and other things I'm just like, ah, oh, these are like Kleenexes. I just pull them out. Right. You know? Right. So I have a different mindset, but, um, you know, if I'm going to dress up a little bit or be more presentable than, than I like, I like wood. I like leather. Yeah. I like all those nice things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't see any sheets. It really stood out as far as high level craftsmanship. There was maybe one or two. Yeah. You know, but even everybody there that had their cutters, their competition cutters, those sheaths were rough. Yeah. You know, because it was just function. Yeah. And the knives were rough too. I mean, they, they'd been beat up. They well, yeah, they were, they'd been were used. A tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't, even though they were really nice. Um, the, the few cutters that we did see yeah. that had been used in competitions, yeah. I thought were 
excellent blades mm-hmm. and had nice handle construction and guards and palm caps and mm-hmm. I, I, they were constructed very well yeah and still somebody put a lot of time into yeah. them but they were built to to bash and smash but that's what i like out of the knife i if something's too much of a showpiece i won't use I, it yeah <laughs> i won't i just I, just out of principle yeah you, you know i carry a leatherman all the time yeah i told myself like five years ago i'm gonna get this leatherman i'm gonna carry it every day and i'm gonna use it for anything and everything and i do and i'm hard on it yeah i even went and bought myself a second one brand new in the package so that i wouldn't be afraid to use the one that i was carrying because i knew that i could just replace it with a new one i will purchase additional knives but I'm one to where I'm like, okay, this knife does this really great. But if it only did this, and then I'll find one that does that thing. And I'm like, okay, well, that th- that knife works really well for that. It doesn't quite work for this, yeah. though. Maybe I need one that does this over here. And before I know it, I've got 14 knives that are mm-hmm. all knives, that all cut, that all do knife things. Great. Yeah. But I'm like, well, if it was just a... Yeah. I, I can't ever <laughs> be happy enough to buy two of them <laughs> i here's the thing the ones that i buy two of or three of it's not that i think it's the ultimate knife it's just i can't bring myself to really use it and be hard on it and risk losing it or breaking it oh uh, it's strange maybe that's where we differ because whenever I get a new knife, I get it lives in my hand every free moment. Yeah. Like I'll sit on the couch yeah. watching TV and it's I won't watch what I'm doing, but I can I mm-hmm. can feel it. Same with the knife that I make. Yeah. I will rough forge it and then I'll take it inside for a mm-hmm. day or two. And I'm like, this isn't quite right. This needs to change or this shape isn't. I could use maybe a sixteenth off here. Yeah. And I'll go out and I'll change it. And then another couple of days I'll be yeah. like, well, I kind of like that. Maybe if this happened over here, maybe if I just tweaked it just a little and then I'll, and that's how, that's what I do with all of them. I just obsess over them and I will know I could pick my knife out of any forged knife in the dark. Yeah. I was about to say, can you do it in the dark? Yeah. And, and I knew I could, I could pick it up it. and yeah. be like, yep, that's mine. Yeah. Or no, that's not mine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. Uh, and and that's what's so strange um but i think that's part and parcel of like a craftsman is and i've said this before to people part of what you're doing whenever you hire me to your project is you're you're renting my ocd yeah you know what i mean my obsession i will obsess over things that you don't care about and I will out of pocket change things mm-hmm. or redo things until I'm happy with it. Yeah. I've even had people be like, oh, it's fine. I can't even tell the difference. And I'm like, I completely understand. If you'll indulge me, I'm going to bring another one and put that in because it's going to look better to me. Yeah. And they're like, well, I mean, budget. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to charge <laughs> you. Yeah. Just please let me do this because it, 
I'll sleep better at night. Certainly. But that's part of what they're getting. Again, it goes back to there are makers that you will um, interact with, and then there are makers that you're like, no. Why? Because it's part of that person's character. Right. But part of what I want to buy is him. Yeah. And say, I think you're worth it. Right. I think you're worth that amount. I think that if you started to go fund me and you said, I need X amount so that I can make my next knife and there was no knife involved. Yeah. I'd be like, all right, I'll do it. Cause, cause people in one way or another, maybe not monetarily, actually, yes. Monet- I guarantee you there are people that when I started, they saw how hard I was working and how much I was struggling. And they just said, you know what? He reminds me of me. Mm-hmm. And they purchased things from me that at the time were astronomical amounts of money that I couldn't fathom. Yeah. And they just said, yes, you, you're the person I'm giving that to. Right. And that's part of what led me to where I'm at, you know? And so I think that's also part of what a craftsman is supposed to do is like once they get uh, to a point where they can pick someone and say, yes, you, I, I like your character. Mm-hmm. I like what you're about. And, and, and I like your approach to things. Right. Um, let's leave everything else out of it. I, I want to be your benefactor in some small way. Yeah. Kind of, kind of pay it forward. Yeah. To help them. Yeah. To help them move forward. Right. You know, cause if, if you can offset that person's fuel and expenses and travel and hotel yeah. and whatever, yeah. then at least this wasn't a loss for them. Sure. You know? So yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. If that chef knife hadn't had that extra zero on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but I know why it has the extra zero. But I very much do. Too. Yeah. I'm not saying that it was overpriced. I think it was priced right, right on. Yeah. But I don't know. The, the work he did on it, mm-hmm. it, it was, it was simple. Yeah. But it was done extremely well. Yeah. I I would have I would have bought that. Yeah. I agree. I think the other knives he had were nice, mm-hmm. but that one just really stood out. It was something about it. Mm-hmm. It was the one he had three stacked. It was in the middle. Yeah. That he had that one. real skinny one on top. Yep. That feather Damascus mm-hmm. in the middle and then another one below it. Yeah. You know, um, one of the bladesmiths, you and I have talked about the one that knows how to sell knives. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he saddled up next to me one time whenever everybody was eating barbecue. And, you know, we'd play the game of like when someone walked in, he'd be like, what do you think they do? Yeah. Based on haircut and shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And he could nail it. Remember? Yeah. There was, there was that. <laughs> Tell the story. Well, I'm not naming any names, but but he like squinted his eyes and he goes, he's a car salesman or he's a Baptist preacher. <laughs> and then when it came time to say the prayer, he was like, We're gonna ask brother so and so. He was the Baptist preacher yeah. in that town. Yeah. And he nailed it. 
And, and whenever he started to pray, I cut my eyes over at him and he looked at me and winked. And I was just like, oh, he's good. He's good. Yeah. You know, he also told me that um, Porsche knows what colors are going to be the next two or three years in advance, what colors they're going to paint the uh, Porsche like nine, 911s. That far in advance. Yeah. You know how they do it? Uh, I think you told me this before. It has something to do with ladies' nail polish or something. Eyeshadow. Eyeshadow. The most popular colors of eyeshadow sold worldwide. Yeah. They find those colors, and then that becomes the color of the next year's 9-11. And, and how that's done. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, for you, it was a chef knife. For me, it was uh, it was either that bog oak, black handle. Yeah. Simple knife. Mm-hmm. A lot of handle there. Uh, or when we first made, we went anti-clockwise around that room, around the outside. Yeah anti-clockwise across from the table that was selling all of the um, uh, knife making material yeah towards the interior of the circle yeah there was a sheep horn uh, or maybe mastodon ivory okay Damascus and the gentleman was he it was a real it was a hollow grind real heavy spine yeah and then had a nice taper in that and they were probably four inch blades, you know, one of those caught my eye. Look really oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I don't think I saw that. No prices on it. I'm sure we're talking 1200. Yeah. To two. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's better if there had been a price tag on it. That was a lot lower than that. I probably would have <laughs> just picked it up. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. I I just enjoy seeing other people's creativity. Yeah. And passion. Well, and the other side of that is there were a few tables where I saw the same knife with 15 different handles. Yeah. There was limited creativity. Or, or maybe that was just the run they were doing and they could make a lot of different knives, but that's... there, there was, and I, I don't think those were all hand forged. No, I think they were, they were stock removal, uh, which there's a lot of people that make some beautiful stock removal knives, even mm-hmm. Damascus. Mm-hmm. They'll buy d- mm-hmm. the blanks and, mm-hmm. and still do that. But those are probably like say where they make their money. That's how they pay for gas and lodging at these shows yeah. is they have those the same knife their yeah. signature style whatever that may be um which even some of the top makers mm-hmm. have that yeah. one that they're like yeah i've been making this for 30 years this is it, you know yeah more than likely somebody you yeah. know has one of these yeah and they do really well with it the ones with the the 85 different color handles yeah are probably the lowest price knife in the room. 
I would think. And they're they're counting on volume sales rather than mm-hmm. than the one collector. Which so that I don't sound like I'm on an ivory pedestal, I totally get if that's what it takes so that you don't have to go back to a regular job, mm-hmm. then I'm your cheerleader. Sure. Because I'm like, hey, it's all about staying in the game long enough so that you can develop and get those. Right. Like that gentleman was saying, five collectors. Yeah. You need five collectors, you know? And that's true. That's even in mine, you know, ironwork, you know, I basically need five families, five strong families that, that have that sort of inclination and desire to, to purchase that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And one family can give you enough work, keep you busy for six months or a year. And then, you know, a lot of times people at that level, um, they, uh, they buy and sell houses, then they redo another house and they, yeah, they stick years, with what they know. Come back around. Yeah. 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 I, I understand that. And they may, so something I've learned with trying to make different styles, I haven't made two knives in the same way or same style yet, but each time you have to figure out well, how do I hold this on the grinder and yeah. how do I swing the hammer to get the metal a lot to of do work this? And yeah. how do I, you know, and if you've got one where you're dialed in and yeah. you know, every time this is where I stand, this is how I hold yep. it. This is what I do. I can make four of these in a the time it takes me to re mm-hmm. to create a new style of whatever. Yeah. And I'll make, just as much or maybe a little more money off those four than I will this one. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you just break out those four and get them on the table? And that's called a business and heavy, you yeah. know, get them to move and absolutely go on to the next one. Absolutely. The, the only uh, time where that becomes a stumbling block is whenever you plateau and you just do that over and over. Yeah. And 10 years later, you come across the same table and they haven't branched out at all or found yeah. another and you know that's what i was getting to is that's good to keep to keep the lights on yeah um but in the background you should be somewhat innovative in coming up with something and and this is you know what this goes back to character and this goes back to um building relationships with other craftsmen if you're able to build relationships with other craftsmen and share information that, you know, you will grow and you won't get caught into a plateau. Mm-hmm. If you have a type of personality where people don't necessarily find it easy to spend time with you, okay. I think it's very easy to get in this bubble where you just get in this perpetual motion sort of rinse and repeat. Yeah. And you don't grow and you don't branch out and that is that's going to limit how far you can go and what you can do sure i again it's so much personality it's so much character it's like one you have to be easy enough to deal with with the client and those are actually some of the easiest people to deal with your contemporaries um 
those are the people that really in the world of craft, they make or break you. Mm -hmm. If you can't spend time with them and learn from them and grow and share things, then you're just going to, you're going to stagnate. Right. And that's going to land you wherever it lands. You may be able to make a living. You may be able to keep doing it and all those sorts of things, but you're not going to grow and you're not going to innovate. And so much of it is how hard are you, are you work to be around? Right. What, one of my least favorite phrases is whatever somebody's like, well, they can't handle me. You know what I mean? And I just want to be like, what? So you, you understand that you're a lot of work to be around and to deal with. Like that's not everybody else's problem. That's your problem. You got to get out there and and be around other people. Yeah. Uh, your contemporaries, not, not, um, not just clients. No. Well, here's what I say. I say we wrap it up. Sounds good to me. Okay. All right. All right.